Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Zion 2.0. I'm your host, Colin Morris. This is a podcast about the future. If you think things are getting strange and you'd like to hear conversations with people that are asking good questions, you're in the right place. This is a small, humble project. No advertisements. It's free. So I do rely on generous donations in order to keep the lights on. So if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. Patreon.com slash Colin of Zion. You can also visit my website for more podcasts and information at www.zionpod.me. I've also started doing live streams on YouTube. These are unedited, less formal conversations, mostly with original thinkers that I find on Twitter. Just go to YouTube and search Colin Morris. Lastly, I love when listeners reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Colin of Zion or email me through my website. Okay. Enjoy the show. All right, let's do this. Cool. Hey, Benet. How's it going? We meet at last. I know we've been trying to arrange this podcast for a year or something. Yeah, a year or so. I mean, I first I first reached out to you a few years ago just for some like general life advice. Mm. Um, and then you recommended uh, Crisis and Adman. Oh, yeah, the marketing <laughs> book. Yeah, you recommended that book. And then there was one other... Um, like crypto cypherpunk book. I don't remember what it was. Oh, probably Shockwave Writer. Shockwave Writer, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you read it? I did. What yeah. Did you, what did you think of it? I, I mean, both of those books were uh, were fantastic. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed both. Um, yeah, the Shockwave Writer sort of reminded me of Cory Doctorow vibes. Mm-hmm. What's amazing to me about Shockwave Writer is it was written in 76, mm-hmm. and it predicts so much of the modern world. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost uncanny how close it got to modern America in so many different dimensions. So for people that haven't read it, can you give a brief, like, sort of overview of what that's, what the story's about? So it's set in a future America where exponential change has basically torn society apart. And it's left huge numbers of people clinging to the past in a completely irrational way, trying to hide from the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not that the tech is, like, singularitarian, massive high tech. Mm-hmm. What it predicts is a world with, you know, a rough equivalent of the internet, a little bit of asteroid mining, and a few successful instances of genetic engineering. But generally speaking, what's wrecking people is the enormous acceleration of business and emotional relationships. So they're changing jobs all the time. They're switching partners around. They have a thing called the plug-in lifestyle, um, which is basically a combination of Airbnb and Tinder. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything is transitory mm-hmm. um, and it, it portrays that world in like really fine detail um, based on the work of a guy called Alvin Toffer so Alvin and Heidi Toffer were futurists who wrote a series of books the most famous which is Future Shock um, and Brunner apparently wrote um, his book based very tightly on their models mm-hmm. and it produced an incredibly accurate stable 50 year prediction about the shape of society and the discontents that people would feel inside of it. Uh, mm. And it's really kind of, um, what I take out of that is that the underlying model must have been phenomenally predictive and it will continue to be phenomenally predictive. Mm-hmm. So they got a lot of stuff right 50 years into the future and they'll those models will continue to give us guidance for probably another two or three decades. So I think of it as almost being prophetic if you could make that many guesses right about the next 50 years, probably the other guesses you made will also be correct. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm trying to remember what the protagonist's relationships were all about. Like, was it a, 
was it a sort of classical hero's journey story or was it like the hacker collective as hero? No. So it's a single individual who is a dysfunctional SKP from um, a massively uh, intense government training academy for super bureaucrats. Right. So they're training people whose job it is to handle the discontinuous rate of change so the government doesn't collapse under the weight of the future. Right. Um, And he basically has gotten himself locked into this neurotic wedge where he's just hiding out kind of like a stainless steel rat. You know, he's just hopping from identity to identity to identity to identity to stay hidden, but he's gotten completely hollowed out inside. And then by chance, he runs into a community that have actually sorted out the interface between humans and technology in a new way. They've gotten a completely different sociological understanding of what technology is and how it changes people and how you have to take active control of those interfaces to be human. And he runs into that community and they completely blow his mind because they have a worked example of how you can be human in a world with this kind of technological acceleration. And he then joins that community and then that community is kind of the protagonist of the last half of the book, Mm. the last third of the book. How does he get a a handle on his emotions? So he actually is the the poster child for totally wrecking his emotional state. Uh-huh. Because what happens is every time he switches identities, he takes a bunch of anti-anxiety drugs to cushion the shock, and he still has this enormous baggage from having been, you know, an abused kid in a government school that was intended to turn him into a part of a bureaucratic machine that he had no stake in. So he actually is never emotionally healthy in the entire book. And what blows his mind is being around people who are emotionally healthy, at which point he realizes that he's broken. Mm-hmm. And then he has the kind of conversion experience of like, oh my God, I'm doing this wrong. And then the last chunk of the book is him slowly learning how to deal with people that are actually basically well, having lived his entire life in a world which was quite sick. Mm-hmm. And it's really well put together. I mean, it's a it's a very, very insightful book. Um, you have to do a little bit of work because it was written in the 70s. So a lot of things are phrased in weird ways and the vocabulary is a little strange. Um, so you do have to sit down with a bit of a sense of like, okay, I'm going to work at getting the meaning out of this. But it's not like reading Chaucer or something. It's just the 70s were a different era. So, okay, so what do you make of this? What do you make of the idea that um, there are, in fact, people that are emotionally well in a fucked up, traumatized culture, broadly? Mm. So, I mean, I think that for most people, if their nuclear family is doing okay and their extended family isn't in total crisis, happiness is possible. Mm -hmm. So if you take the kind of, let's say, well-adjusted 20% of the population, there will be nuclear families that by chance have two parents, both of whom are Mm well-adjusted. And they will live in a completely different universe to a world where either both partners are kind of busted or one is busted and the other isn't. and I think that, you know, it is partly chance. It's partly, you know, nature, nurture. We don't really understand uh, cognitive resilience or emotional resilience. We don't really understand it. Um, there are also various kinds of walking wounded. Like, I'm sure that Leonard Cohen was an enormous pain in the arse who never really dealt with a bunch of his baggage. Mm-hmm. But I'm also sure that by the time he was 90, he'd made such a phenomenal art out of being that person that who's going to say that he should have cleaned up earlier? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, totally. Adaptation counts as well. There are there are many kinds of healthy response. Right. Um, but what we have in this culture a lot, and I'm not sure if it's getting worse or getting better or staying about the same. I don't have enough historical perspective. But we, what we have in this culture a lot is walking wounded who are basically using their credit cards to compensate for 
fundamentally broken emotional needs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why can't spiritual people handle their emotions? <laughs> well, funny you should ask, right? So one of the things that I've noticed is that therapy is a really important part of any kind of long-term meditation practice. If people aren't getting enough therapy early enough on in that process, what seems to happen is that they form these kind of hardened little shells in their minds where they put the stuff that they don't want to run across when they're meditating, uh-huh. right? Right. So, you know, if you're doing something like mantra meditation and you have a bunch of unpleasant emotions come up, you can seal that stuff back down with your mantra and at that point, progress is not being made. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So for a lot of spiritual people, I think they're using the spiritual disciplines as a way of suppressing emotions. And this leads to the disastrous meltdowns that you hear in things like Vipassana retreats, where people have been holding the emotions down and holding the emotions down and holding the emotions down. Suddenly their brain gets to the point where it's like, no, we are doing this now. We are purging this. And then they have some enormous, you know, brain-breaking emotional discharge. Mm. And then after that, if you're lucky, they pick up the pieces. And for the few that are unlucky, they wind up with like actual mental illness and crisis centers. Um, so to do the meditation in such a way that the emotional toxicity doesn't wind up getting sealed up and then erupting requires a, an approach to meditation, which is way more open to the emotional problems that we have than meditation traditionally is. Right? And a huge part of that is that an enormous amount of our meditation know-how comes from monks, and monks do not have the same emotional problems that householders have. Mm. Right? If you're a monk, in theory, you're not going to pick up any more new emotional trauma. Right? Especially if you enter the system oh, yeah. young. Like like it was traditionally done. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, you know, you join a monastery, you don't have kids, you don't have an ex wife. You know, you break your ties with your parents and your brothers and your sisters because the monks are essentially dead. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder what kind of trauma that brings, though. Well, I mean, if you want to be free of the world, being free of the world may have some trauma associated with it, but it's a trauma that you chose. Right. You have agency. Do you choose it as a child, though? Um, I mean, I chose something pretty equivalent when I was in my early 20s. Uh-huh. Right. For the Vajra folks, you know, the reincarnate lamas who are going in when they're like four, that's a whole different story. Uh-huh. Um, and that, you know, complicated cultural factors enter in there. Right. But, you know, for the most part, the people that choose to be monastics, and I, I should say I'm not exactly a monastic, but I'm not exactly not a monastic. Uh, I'm, I'll explain a bit more about that. But the, the people that go into the monastic world, one way or another, they should not be accumulating new trauma, and their old trauma will in many cases be relatively minimal. Mm-hmm. Right, because you know it's not like they've gone through the whole cycle of everything being screwed up and making their middle-aged mistakes and all the rest of that. Right. Um, so, at that point, there is less of a need for high-quality emotional clearing in that process. Mm. Right. There's just less of a need for it. Plus, they're under a lot less emotional strain. If you're meditating at the same time as you know your second kid is going through chemotherapy and your first kid is freaking out, and your marriage is under an enormous amount of strain, this is a completely different environment for meditation than being sat on a cushion in a 500-year-old monastery where nothing ever changes. Mm-hmm. So the sheer intensity of that grind is not something that the traditional practices are well-geared for dealing with. 
Uh, and then you add to this an ultra-high change, where you change society with no fundamental epistemological certainty about anything, mm. the, the techniques needed to adjust it. Yeah, so I, I've heard, I don't remember where I heard you talking about this. It may have been on Daniel Thorson's podcast, but you, you were saying something like the uh, the monastic path is becoming harder and harder to justify in a world on fire, something like that. Sure. Uh, another sort of maybe a counter argument to that would be that we desperately need places of deep study that are taken, that are separate from uh, all of the noise, the fake news, the confused meaning-making that's happening. So places where people can actually go and do deep study, deep history work, and, and all these things, and mm -hmm. create centers of, uh, I mean, wisdom, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so what I was driving at specifically is... You know, are your spiritual people doing something to directly influence the fate of the world? Uh -huh. right? So you can make an argument that if what you have is a set of medieval social ills, a spiritual approach of showing a better way of people treating each other and maintaining it for centuries is effective action. Um, if the problem is, let's say, nuclear war, the monasteries are not directly doing anything to make that less likely. And that raises a whole bunch of issues. Mm. Right? And if the issue is pervasive, you know, climate change and you know, the degradation of nature and deforestation and um, loss of biodiversity and all the rest of this stuff, the whole kind of ecocide problem, um, dealing with that is very non-trivial. Mm -hmm. You know, and if the religious people and the spiritual people of the world don't form a much more active part of the response process, I don't see how we can expect everybody else to sort this out alone. Like, we have to be there as part of culture, pushing on that as a moral responsibility. And I think that that's within most religious traditions. If you think of the Buddhist concept of right action or the Jewish concept of tikkun, you know, in almost any spiritual tradition, you can find something which says, well, if the world is ending, maybe you ought to do something to prevent that. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's in the context of, say, Buddhist right action. That's a very easy thing to justify as right action. Because the opposite is very clearly wrong action. Yeah. Well, well what do you make of... Um, it might fall under the broad category of save the world psychology. Mm. Do you mean the kind of flappy nonsense stuff? Or do you mean the people that are up to their eyeballs in existential risk management? Are we talking like Greta? Or are we talking like social enterprises. Well, well, perhaps it might be beneficial to tease apart some of the, these dynamics. So under the, the broad umbrella of save the world psychology, mm. what might be, what might be um, action that's being compelled by trauma versus, I don't know, um, I don't know, like more uh, effective action that's being motivated from a, 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 a deeper place or something. Mm. So here, I think we've got to make some careful distinctions, right? Yeah. Not all action based on trauma is bad action, mm -hmm. right? You know, like if you become a super careful driver because you had a near miss in a car and you freak out every time a lorry is too close. Right. Uh, this is probably wise response, mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, if you think of, you know, the level of trauma in, say, a bunch of uh, indigenous cultures that got damn near genocided in the colonial period, you know, that depth of traumatization often results in people being really ineffective. You know, mm -hmm. enormous amounts of alcoholism, intergenerational violence. Many of these cultures got broken, and the trauma has not transformed 
because it's so deep and so pervasive and it got all of them that it's not clear that they can be reasonably expected to pull themselves out by their bootstraps. Right. You know, the rates of alcoholism in Native American culture and Australian Aboriginal culture are off the charts, but you think then of the sheer scale of the losses that those cultures took, mm-hmm. maybe not that surprising that a lot of individuals are, you know, still in a position where they can't pull themselves out. Right. Right, because like if the entire world ends, these people are living in their equivalent of the Mad Max reality. Yeah. You know, like the Mad Max apocalyptic collapse where everybody in Iowa turned to cannibalism. You know, that's more or less how severely these cultures were degraded by their contact with the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, if you think of the amount of hard drinking that would be done in a genuinely post-apocalyptic society, wouldn't be that surprising if the tables were turned and it was us. Right. Um, so there's a real, you know, there's a real need to carve out, well, okay, what are we actually talking about when we say effective or ineffective? Um, uh, yeah, there's there's no clean way of putting this. But to me, the problem is this. Category one, people face the problem and then do something about a problem that they're clearly looking at. Right? So they have clarity, they have insight, and these things lead to wisdom. Category two, they're working on a problem, but the people spending the money to solve the problem are spending the money so they don't have to look at it. Uh, say that again. So category one, you're looking straight at the problem and you f- work on fixing the problem. Mm-hmm. Category two, you don't want to look at the problem and you pay somebody to make you feel like you don't have to uh-huh. look at it. Yeah. So if you think of all the money that goes into so like refugee stuff. A lot of times the refugee stuff is like, oh, this is really terrible. Those poor people have some money. Don't tell me any more about this. right? And as a result, it's very common for the people who are then spending that money to spend it in ways which are really ineffective. Like Nobody breathes down the wreck of the United Nations on the basis that we gave them a bunch of money and they have to do their damn jobs. Mm-hmm. right? The money is like, we gave money to the United Nations. Stop giving us a hard time about refugees. You don't see how much money we gave to the UN. Mm. So... Category one, you want the problem solved and you find resources to do it. Category two, you don't want to think about the problem. You give money so that people will stop bugging you about it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of category two stuff, I mean, every time you see a social enterprise, which is like, we're going to have like six or seven perky young new college graduates on the staff on pretty decent salaries for a starting salary for a college grad, and they're going to spend the vast majority of that money doing visioning and admin work and then at the end of that they're going to run like one small soup kitchen which will actually spend 20% of the money on food you know you see that structure replicate over and over and over and over again and then once in a while you get some smash hit like charity water which moves I don't know hundreds of millions of dollars directly into water and sanitation funding Mm. but for the most part the problem here is the motivation Mm -hmm. right if the folks running some, you know, crappy soup kitchen with enormous overheads are not comfortable enough dealing with the homeless to have them in their own homes, in all probability they're not comfortable looking at the homeless directly and dealing with those problems. And they're sort of spending money and spending time as a way of being morally disengaged. Mm-hmm. And it's that moral disengagement which makes the action ineffective because if you can't see straight what's happening, you're going to have problems. Hmm. And th- that inability to clearly perceive what is going on causes enormous trouble. Because if you can't actually see what's happening, how are you going to take effective action? 
right? It's, it's this thing of like the blind surgeon, right? Oh, this surgery is really gory and scary. I never liked reporting this surgery. That's why I wear a blindfold. Mm. And the blind surgeon is a huge part of our humanitarian community. Hmm. I'm really curious to ask you about, uh, about your relationship to um, emotions and seeing problems clearly. Hmm. So I've heard, I've heard you, I've heard you been ca called a sociopath. Yeah. I mean, I am almost certainly in that spectrum. Uh -huh. right? I might be, you know, like full blown sociopaths might be like full blown autists. Uh -huh. And then you've Asperger's, which is kind of the penumbra of uh, autism. Yeah. So I'm certainly somewhere in the penumbral territory around sociopathy uh, because I have an enormous amount of background trauma. Do you know about the ACE scores? Yeah. Right, so I have an A score of nine, mm. and that's only because the people that made the quiz really seriously lacked imagination. Mm. Right, I have off the charts levels of trauma, mm -hmm. um, and you know, if you have any tendency towards sociopathy or psychop uh, psychopathy, then you know, uh, experiences like torture will cause those traits to manifest. So, uh, certainly, I have a hardness of vision. But on the other hand, I also have, at this point, 34 years of spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. So I might have started out as an off-the-shelf psychopath or a sociopath, but I certainly am not one now. Mm. What's the difference? To be honest, none of these terms really have any clinical utility anymore. Yeah. Um, um, let me figure out how to phrase this. So... In the same way that schizophrenia is kind of a grab bag disorder, mm -hmm. there are half a dozen things that happen to people and we call them all schizophrenia because they kind of look sort of similar. Um, so we have a broad cluster of things that they now title antisocial personality disorder. Mm -hmm. This is a real problem because it's taken a bunch of people that are sociopaths and psychopaths and are super high performing doctors, lawyers, surgeons, CEOs, diplomats, soldiers, and so on. And it's made those people invisible because they may have an antisocial personality disorder, but as long as they can keep their shit together, we no longer have a name for the broad class of what I would refer to as empathy disorders. Um, so I certainly have an empathy disorder, right? And the way that I know that is that I could work day in, day out on super high death toll scenario planning for pandemic flus and nuclear bombs and not get any depression. Mm. Most people, when they're dealing with that kind of stuff, they just fall to pieces. They get completely destroyed by facing the reality of mass mortality and the levels of suffering and get involved. Mm. And for me, I'm not saying it was easy work, and it certainly lent very heavily on the fact I'd had a lot of therapy. It lent very heavily on the fact that I had done huge amounts of meditation. But the bottom uh, of all of that, there is the fact that I do not feel other people's pain. Mm. Right? If you have an emotional pain, I can see you have an emotional pain, but my emotional state is not heavily influenced by your emotional state. Mm. And I've always been that way. And in some ways that makes me kind of alone. And in other ways it gives me the clarity that's required to cut through the bone of several of the hard problems that we're working with. Mm. And strategically, how do you work with people that don't share that condition? Um, Carefully. I mean... Like when I was doing the pandemic flu stuff, the scenario that I was working on was called the 50-50 scenario. 50-50 uh -huh. scenario, half of the world gets the flu virus and half of that half dies. So 1.8 billion people die in the course of about two years, and your job is to stop that becoming 
three quarters of the human race because the supply chains collapse, everybody starves, we lose the grid, and we wind up basically farming with pitchforks. And that's entirely credible, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the bad end of the H five one nine bird flu, the estimate is that it's more than fifty percent fatal. Hmm. It's super hard for human beings to catch because it's really intended to infest chickens. But if a version of that flu evolves to infest humans, we're talking about minimally a billion dead. Mm. And this kind of thing that's happened all the time, right? The Black Death, right. smallpox in Iceland in the 1750s. So 1750s Iceland had pretty good record keeping because of their tax system and so on. They got smallpox. It killed a third of the population in a year. Mm. So... You know, global air travel, bug like that gets loose. It's everywhere before you can stop it. You know, you get a really serious cascade failure. And I just racked this stuff out day after day after day, by the way, not being paid for doing it, because the work needed to be done, but nobody could find a budget for handling that stuff outside of the classified environment. Mm. And I certainly wasn't going to get a security clearance because you know I just was not going to go into that world. So... I did the work unpaid. The only person I could find that would help was um, uh, an epidemiologist from Spain called Lucas Gonzalez. And together we basically just went through those scenarios and pulled the whole story together and came up with several actionable insights about things you can do that will massively reduce the impact of that kind of event. Now, at the end of that, I had put on a ton of weight because you spend that much time thinking about food supply for a starving planet and your body begins to implicitly think that in the future there might be severe supply chain disruption so it triggered a whole bunch of reflexes in my brain that pack would, it in now you see what i'm saying right yeah. i put on so much weight during that project i've never been able to get rid of it because my body understood at a completely primal level how fragile the whole thing is mm. oh my god and i think i might you know like maybe hypnotherapy or something would fix that uh, but I tried a lot of things. I haven't found one that worked yet. Hey, you, have you tried hypnotherapy? I've tried it, yeah. Uh, Might be worth a try, right? Yeah. But you know, to get into the unconscious mind deeply enough to reset the fear that comes with the accurate perception of the risk would take some work. But what it didn't do was dis- destroy me and sink me into depression. Right. Right. No, near, neither did the nuclear work. And the ability to single step through those scenarios, you know, week one, week two, week three, week four... Here's the spreadsheet. How many dead? How many contaminated? Do we still think the power grid is up? You know, how many calories are left in the food supply chain? And just to step through those scenarios day in, day out for years, right? Because, you know, I worked on many things along these lines, pandemic flu, uh, nukes, um, bioterrorism, uh, state failures of various kind, economic collapses, and just general poverty. Right, and all of that work reapplies to climate change. I started working on rehousing three hundred million climate refugees in two thousand two. Mm. Right, so I've been doing a thirty, executing a thirty-year plan for handling three hundred million climate refugees that I started in two thousand two, and that I've never received funding for, because at the end of the day, if you start a company, the odds of it lasting thirty years are practically nil. If you start charity, the odds of it lasting 30 years are practically nil. I've literally carried the damn thing as a hobby. Because that, it's under my control. And if I make a plan that I can execute with those resources, that is enough to get the job done. So all that is to say, I think that the sociopaths and the psychopaths of the world ought to be reorganized into a category we call empathy disorders. And we ought to acknowledge that there is a bunch of really horrible, shitty work in this world for which empathy-disordered people are natural fits. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and that's almost certainly why these things evolved, right? I mean, these are heritable conditions. You have right. an empathy disorder because your parents have passed you genes for one, and this is probably because there had to be some stupid bastard that could be sent into a hole to see whether the tiger had actually eaten all the kids yet or just dragged them back to be eaten later. Mm, right? Yeah. Who's going to go in there, face the danger, and deal with the gore? What if it all goes wrong? Right? Mm. I mean, humans have been performing cesarean sections for a really long time. Right? Imagine the f- mortality rate of cesarean sections in some place like ancient Egypt or Rome. Yeah. Right? Somebody had to hold the knife. And when it worked, mother and child both survived. Even in those days, mother and child would both survive in some instances. So, no knife, both die. Knife, one will live for sure and the other probably. Maybe. Somebody has to do that kind of work for human for humans to survive. And I think that we ought to basically accept that these folks are out there. And the most critical thing you can do is make sure that they get therapy young so that they grow up with self-awareness. Right? Meditation and therapy young, you know, it's not that hard to screen for empathy disorders. And if we screened for empathy disorders effectively and got early treatment, far more of these people would be able to live stable lives rather than winding up as criminals. Mm. You know, in my case, early psychotherapy, tons of meditation, and then finding productive work for me to do using that skill set all contributed to me being, I would say, a pretty productive member of society. Mm-hmm. Um, because that planning work has been you know, absorbed by a bunch of agencies. It's reshaped thinking in the field in some pretty profound ways. Um, and nobody else would have done it. Mm-hmm. Nobody else ever had. Mm. So, you know, I think that we are in danger of seeing a large-scale demonization of people with empathy disorders. I see this a lot on the left, like, oh, we're being ruled by corporate psychopaths, and that's the problem. Right. And it's kind of like, well, you know, actually you're, you're voting for them. You know, you're voting with your dollars in stores, and you're voting for them at the ballot box, and... You know, if you wanted to be run by nice people, you wouldn't be able to extract all these resources from the rest of the world at gunpoint. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, if Apple wasn't acting in a kind of psychopathic way about its supply chain management and all the pressure that it's putting on places like Foxconn to produce goods at incredibly low prices to the point where their workers were jumping off bridges. Remember all that stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, it turns out everybody's being fed by that psychopathy. And then people turn around and act as if they're kind of tired of being ruled by corporate psychopaths. Well, if that thing was run by a bunch of Swedish liberals, it would cost you twelve hundred, you know, dollars for a laptop. Or sorry, it would cost you, you know, twenty five hundred dollars for a laptop rather than twelve hundred, and the phone would be about the same mm-hmm. because nobody would be being exploited anywhere down that process. So there's this weird thing where we demonize the corporate psychopaths while at the same time expecting them to go and oppress other people so we can have cheap toys. Yeah. Massive cognitive dissonance. Massive cognitive dissonance. And I think that we could do a lot of good in this world pretty cheaply by screening for these folks as kids and getting them help. Hi, you have an empathy disorder. That means it's really easy for you to hurt people without meaning to and without noticing you're doing it. And if you don't get help noticing that kind of stuff, you're going to ruin your life and a bunch of other people's too, probably. By the way, never get into drugs or alcohol because they'll really corrupt you much faster than normal people. Mm-hmm. And you could really train these kids to manage those flaws so you get the upside of the clarity without the downside of the compulsion. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's a massive problem because, you know, we're within 20 years of being able to do genetic testing for this stuff. And right now what's forming on the left is a eugenics block 
where they're acting as if the answer to their social problems is to weed these people out of the gene pool in vitro. Hmm. And I've seen a lot of people in the last five years kind of take that position on Facebook. Um, and I think that if that is even remotely thought of, you know, as a legitimate position, it's really going to destroy the world. Because hmm. that's a thin end of the wedge for eugenics as a much wider program. Wait, say more about that argument. What is that? What is this argument that's being presented by people on the left? So the argument is that sociopaths and psychopaths are destroying the world because they're just not nice, goddammit, and that they've accumulated a ton of power because they're overrepresented in the CEO class. Right. right. Now, the response to that is, well, you know, maybe we should take these people out of power and make it so that you can't be a CEO if you're a psychopath or a sociopath. Okay, reasonable on paper, right? And we're going to do genetic discrimination by identifying these people and then barring them from positions of power because of what they might do based on their genes. Mm-hmm. Why was that the thin end of the wedge? Mm. Right? And that position has gone unchallenged for years and it's basically festering in the corners as a modern eugenics. Um, that was the sparking issue that led to an enormous bust up between me and the Game B people. Oh, yeah. Right? So what flared that was somebody stood up in Game B openly proclaiming that the answer to all society's problems was eugenics. They didn't use the word eugenics, but I pointed out that the stance that they are taking was literally a eugenicist stance and it was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And then this got into a whole bunch of tone policing. Oh, you can't be angry on Game B. That's not allowed. We're all nice to each other. I'm like, you're really going to stand by while somebody espouses a eugenics position? Mm. Like, really? Does that seem reasonable to you? And then this escalates into a discussion about carbon footprint and slavery footprint. Where I'm like, look, you know, the problem with Game B is it has an enormous blind spot, which is it's trying to build a win-win world for rich white people. Mm. Nobody in Game B seems to give a rat's ass about either the climate and its stability or the slavery involved in maintaining your standard of living. You don't think of yourself as being the rich and privileged 1%. You think you're normal people. But the 1% line for income globally is $35,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So they're all in the global 1%, and the lifestyle, you know, they're doing all this utopian futuring about a world which cannot exist, right? If you're going to have a win-win world, it has to mean there are no slaves involved in making your clothing. That's not win-win. It's not win-win if there are slaves making your goddamn shoes. It's not win-win if there are children digging in holes with freaking trowels to mine the minerals that go into building the, uh, you know, receiver chips for your phones. This is not win-win. Win-win has to mean including the people that are building your stuff. Mm. And this provoked massive meltdowns in Game B. Mm-hmm. Like, unbelievable breakdowns because they'd built a world in their heads in which the only problem they had to solve was between them and their credit card company. Yeah, well, so what do you make of the... Um Maybe on the more extreme end of the reactions that that you received, the mm. the you know the critical feedback or the um, the people that were getting upset, what, mm. what do you what do you make of it? And what do you think it's about? Why people really liked Martin Luther King and why people really disliked Malcolm X? Mm. Right? Yeah. You know, if an oppressed minority comes out with a kind of Gandhian position of like. We're all in it together, and we all have to try a little harder. And you know, it's the same God that you know applies to all of us. And da, 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 da. then white folks are really genuinely deeply comforted by that, and they might give some ground as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody lionizes these people, right? The people that are just like, 
actually, we have as much right to bread as you do, and you robbed our societies blind for centuries, and if you keep doing it, we're going to punch you in the goddamn neck. Those people tend to be less popular. Mm. Right? So if you think about how badly the Native Americans were being shafted in Canada, they started showing up with guns. Mm-hmm. Right? They started saying, look, this is our tribal land, and if you try and log our tribal land, we will shoot you. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they were no longer popular. Now they were terrorists. Right? So I think that a lot of these folks were basically pampered white people who had no idea that anybody in the world was angry at them for the lifestyle that they were maintaining and the values that they were espousing. Mm. And let me tell you, the rest of the world has kind of had enough of this shit from the whites. It's, a, uh, it's an incomplete picture of uh, power or a relationship to power. It's, so you can't make it as abstract as a power relationship thing. Right? I mean, it is possible to do that. Um, but if you just focus on your personal consumption, there's plenty of damage being done right there. And by the way, you know, I am not in a position where I'm wearing fair trade everything for every scrap of clothing I own, and my laptop was manufactured by fairies, right? Mm-hmm. I'm buying the same crap that everybody else buys because I can't figure out how to have a more ethical lifestyle meaningfully. So I basically buy the same crap that everybody else buys, and I work as hard as I can to try and fix the systems that put me in this position. Mm-hmm. And that's a moral decision that I made. I'm not going to attempt personal lifestyle change. I don't think it has meaningful cost-benefit at this point. I'm going to focus on the politics and the technology. So if you just think about, like, I mean, well, take, take the red box that we're recording this on, right? Mm-hmm. So here's a USB, you know, digital-to-audio converter that is putting the, inf- the signal into the laptop. I guarantee that there are components in there that were made by people living in lives that we would consider to be horrific punishments if we were subjected to them. Mm-hmm. You know that. I know that. We need to fix that. Mm-hmm. And it stops right there. Right? You can't have complicated theories about power relationships and all the rest of it. But we're all directly implicated by our purchasing behavior. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's not that different from people buying cotton from the South when it was being farmed by slaves. Yeah. It's not that different. Everybody wants to pretend that it's a whole different set of phenomena. Not that different. So are you sympathetic at all to these accelerationist arguments? Um, so let's zoom back one step. I want to I pick up a, a thread that I don't want us to drop because it's really important when we talk about accelerationism. So what caused the meltdown on Game B was that these people were good-hearted utopians that wanted a better world for everybody. They just hadn't realized that everybody included brown people. Mm. Right? And as soon as you put the other five-sixths of humanity on the map and say, look, so your current lifestyle is consuming seven times more carbon than is compatible with everybody else continuing to be able to farm. Right? Like, you're destroying the stability of the climate which enables agriculture to function right now. Kind of, you have to stop if you want a win-win world. Right? Mm. And by the way, the you know the other resource consumption stuff is equally bad. And it, if you're talking a win-win world, you have to get back inside of one planet's worth of consumption. Otherwise, your overconsumption is harming everybody else. This is what win-win looks like. The breakdown was that they thought win-win was a minor modification to the current Western model. Mm. But the current Western model is vastly extractive and incredibly violent. Mm-hmm. At which point, what do you do? And making that problem visible to the Game B folks, they took very, very badly because it totally destroys what they thought they were doing, which was basically redesigning shopping, redesigning the workplace, redesigning the uh, capital allocation. 
all of those things, by all means, redesign them. But at the same time, you have to get the slavery out of the supply chain and stop over producing carbon and methane mm-hmm. and all the other warlike stuff. Like, you, you can't talk about win-win unless it's genuinely win-win. Mm. It, it just makes no sense. Right? So then we come to the accelerationist thing, right? So within the given environmental footprint, roughly sustainability looks like the average standard of living in Mexico. Now, the average standard of living in Mexico is not starvation, yeah. And it's probably reasonable levels of comfort for a lot of the population most of the time, right? You know, don't fall off a roof and don't get cancer. And, you know, it's TV and moped and a lot of rice and beans and occasional chicken and, you know, two suits of clothes and, you know, quite a bit of money spent on booze and fun and good music. And, you know, it's kind of pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, it's It's by no means kind of like starvation horror show poverty yeah right but if you put most americans into that lifestyle right and it includes you don't have enough money to simply get a plane to get on a plane to go and visit somebody if you lose your cell phone you may not be able to immediately purchase another one mm-hmm. right if you get ill medical care may or may not be affordable right so th- the downsides are that you lose access to things like education right you are not going to university uh, at least you're not paying for it yourself so uh, there's a kind of the day-to-day life can be pretty tolerable, but it turns out you lose an enormous amount of optionality and you lose an enormous amount of upside and flexibility and you know ability to get into cultural experiences and so on. Mm-hmm. Upsides, downsides. Um, and that's, you know, it's a reasonable proxy if you did a, you know, soup to nuts redesign of everything in society at every level, you could probably get about the entire world up to a modified Mexico. Probably the best example of this kind of work is actually Cuba, mm-hmm. which is a tiny little environmental footprint and a really high quality of life, according to most people. Module of the political issues, which of course are how they were able to get that quality of life. Mm-hmm. Again, let's not talk about authoritarianism quite yet. So then we come along and say, well, how much better could we do if we had really effective robots and mass manufacturing and nanotechnology and biotechnology and all the rest of that? Every single one of those increases the quality of life that you can get with sustainable living. Mm-hmm. So sustainable living on 1900s technology completely sucks. You know, if mm. you're at 1900 and you try and live a one-planet lifestyle, you're going to wind up with a horse-drawn plow. Mm-hmm. Right? 2020 sustainable living, solar panels, right? Electric taxis when you need them. You know, funny-looking electric mopeds, really great sound reproduction, internet, TV. All that's within one planet living, right? The thing that isn't within one planet living is like massive consumption of meat. Well, don't we need just like massive nuclear power to replace all the coal that's being burned still? It's a, it's a viable strategy, right? So one way that you can fix the environmental mess, right? You have to deal with things like deforestation on a separate axis, by the way. But let's deal with carbon first and the rest later. So, you know, deep surgical incisions you can make into the mess. This whole The whole clean meat thing... Mm-hmm where you just stop eating beef and you grow the stuff in uh, a laboratory-type factory, and what comes out is essentially beef protein that came out of some genetic engineering process, that right there is enough to half the environmental footprint of the human race. Holy shit. Seriously? Oh, oh yeah, right there. That's fucking crazy. The Impossible Burger, right, and its descendants will literally half the environmental footprint of the human race. Whoa. No, really seriously. We're within the home stretch on some really big changes. 
I am not hopeless about this at all. Oh yeah, so much more impact than solar panels. Solar panels, freaking amazing. Nuclear power, freaking amazing. Clean meat, amazing beyond amazing. You know why they're burning down, you know, the rainforests? Oh yeah. To grow freaking cow. Right. Right. So if all the cow comes out of an enormous shed on the far side of the motorway, and you have a factory that basically feeds a city, and pretty much all the meat comes out of that factory, and by the way, there are no animals in there. Mm. It's just cell cultures, and it's more like brewing beer than it is like um, farming. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here, right? Mm. You know, we grow this stuff like um, like beer rather than like um, you know cows in a field. Mm-hmm. You know, brewing's pretty good. It's a good technology. We're all big fans of that. So that shift, all of the land which is being used for cow pasture, there's no economic use for farming that stuff anymore. It goes back to nature because it's you're just not going to go out there and grow corn on it. Mm-hmm. Because if it was that kind of land, you'd already be growing corn on it. Right. Massive reforestation, massive rewilding, because there is no economic purpose in farming that stuff anymore. So how do you get the how do you get the massive beef ranching industry to invest in this technology? Um, to be honest, I, th- I think the most likely outcome is that they're just going to get you know jacked by Silicon Valley and stabbed in the neck. Uh-huh. Right, I think I think they really are going to go the way of the American car industry. Silicon Valley will come out with some really amazing queen meat products. It'll be ten cents a kilogram rather than ten dollars a, uh, a kilogram, and they'll just slaughter them in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Eh, tastes about the same. Cost a tenth as much. Good for the planet. Vegetarian. How can you say no? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think it will be one of the biggest systemic disruptions that has ever been caused by technology. Mm-hmm. I I could not be happier about this. Right, because frankly, I grew up in Scotland. I ate a lot of meat. I ate a lot of meat when I was a kid. I actually kind of like eating meat, and I know I should be vegetarian. I was vegetarian for years. You know, it was great for me when it was great for me. Mm-hmm. But then I got altitude sickness and a lung infection. It really screwed up my body. And at that point, meat became a really reliable way of maintaining that problem. Mm-hmm. You know, like there you have it. Doesn't matter how much lentil protein I eat, it does not do the same thing that meat does in terms of maintaining health for me because I just have like structural damage to my lungs. So that sort of problem, the idea that you could fix that for an entire planet with a technological fix, I think that's the kind of change that we need. Mm -hmm. You mentioned nuclear power. You know, one of the last ditch strategies you could have is that the US and maybe China and maybe another couple of countries form a cartel and they just operate nuclear reactors on other people's land. Mm. Right? The American government comes and says, you want us to take you green? Yes, we're going to come down there and build 40 nuclear reactors. Right? We will maintain them. Right? We will take responsibility for their operation. We will sell you the electricity that comes out of them on the following fee schedule, and your people will never touch these reactors. Mm. Right? And you could just export the nuclear reactors all over the world, and because the, the uh, citizens of the country that the reactor is in never touch it, you get no risk of nuclear proliferation. And the sensible, the way to do this, by the way, is to put them on air bases and have the Pentagon run them. Because the Pentagon needs something to do other than finding excuses to fight wars. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Pentagon saves the world by operating a fleet of, you know, 35,000 nuclear reactors all over the world. And, you know, boys and girls in green basically staff these things as a national security priority. I think that would be a great use for the Pentagon. Yeah, um, that sounds like a phenomenal idea. Right. And, you know... I've had some pretty funny looks when I've suggested this to people. But at the end of the day, if we're going to do this thing, 
we might as well do it. Right? So it's not that there are no ways forward which give us sustainability for this quality of life. You can have sustainability for this quality of life if your culture also ships the tech to make it work. Mm-hmm. Can that tech be shipped? Probably. Are we working as hard as we should be on shipping this tech? Not remotely. Right? There are more smart people designing sneakers than there are ending the meat industry. Mm. So we need to reallocate capital to get the smart people working on the problems that will have the environmental impact. Reallocate the capital. Say more about that. <clears throat> well, you're not going to get clean meat unless somebody funds people to do the research to make clean meat happen. Mm-hmm. Some of that will be universities, some of that will be companies, some of that will be governments. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get clean meat if the meat industry manages to sabotage the testing of those products or manipulates Congress to make sure that they stay illegal. Right. Right? So, you know, you need a ton of political will and you need a ton of money to come from somewhere. Clean meat right now seems like it's getting some attention from Silicon Valley, which is good. But if you just basically said, right, you know, U.S. government is going to allocate $25 billion a year to clean meat research and we are going to feed the entire goddamn world on our genetically engineered magic hamburgers, there's a growth industry for America for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Right? And if America was entrepreneurial in the same way that Singapore is entrepreneurial, where the government actually does entrepreneurial activity as a way of taking control of the destiny of the country, then you could go really heavily into, okay, we're going to fix the climate as a great American priority. Right? We're going to do the clean meat thing, we're going to make safe nuclear, we're going to get solar panels down to cents, we're going to populate the entire freaking uh, world with you know satellites so everybody has internet access, and we're going to start mining the asteroid belt so we can stop doing dirty industry on the ground. And that's entirely within the reach of a, like a John F. Kennedy-level president could pull all of that into reality in two terms. This mm. is just a question of political will, and with a little bit of luck, that guy's already in the pipe. Mm-hmm. Right? Beto O'Rourke 2024, 2028. You know, I mean, you know that kid's hacker hang? You know, Beto O'Rourke was a hacker. I didn't know that, no. So Beto O'Rourke was a pivotal member in a thing called Cult of the Dead Cow, which was an elite kind of hacker, prankster, performance art gang that ran all over the world at a big node of activity in Texas back in the 80s and 90s. Huh. And Beto O'Rourke's name when he was in that group was Psychedelic Warlord. What the fuck? And what America deserves... Why doesn't he not come off that cool anymore? Is President Psychedelic Warlord. I think it's because they basically just trained him down for the media to he not come He needs to out. lean into that aesthetic. President Psychedelic Warlord will save you from capitalism. That, they say the left can't meme, but with a name like Psychedelic Warlord, I mean shit. Right? Yeah. And the problem here is that the left are just not the right people to do this, right? Yeah. You know, there is a kind of wingnut Silicon Valley burner libertarian consciousness, which is the thing that could really fly behind President Psychedelic Warward and show the future from that man's lens. Right. So I think we just need Silicon Valley and a bunch of other people to organize around Beto O'Rourke and we'll just run him after Sanders. Uh-huh. Right? You know, he's, he's young, he's strong, he's vital, he's learning how the political game is played, he's gathering support. More and more people are just like, did you know Beto O'Rourke was once called Psychedelic Warlord? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did know that. Do you think he's still in there? There's only one way to find out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And, you know, with the legalization of an increasingly large subset of drugs, 
you know, precedent psychedelic warlord becomes an increasingly viable thing because Americans are getting less scared of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. You mean that thing that cured my auntie's depression? Right. Where they took her to the doctor and fed her magic mushrooms? Yeah. Good with me. <laughs> yeah. right? and, you know, I really think that, you know, President Psychedelic World, he's a little early. Yeah. Right? But, I mean, how old is he? 50? Not even? Uh, he, he feels younger than that. Yeah, seriously. Right? Yeah. So he's got 17 more bites at this apple as long as we can keep him going culturally. You know, mm. he could just stay in orbit until somebody actually has the balls to nominate him. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's game on because I think you could see, you know, all the, you know, the kind of gray church thing. Mm -mm. So you know, red church, blue church, gray church. Mm. So red, red, red church, blue cathedral, whatever it is, right? This analysis. Yeah. So the gray church guys are basically you and me, scientific, rationalist, spiritual but not religious, technocratic, aware of global issues, disgusted by mainstream politics, sure that we could do a better job if people would trust us and give us power and put us in charge. Uh -huh. Right, and he's the natural leader of the great church at a political level. So if we're in a world where we've got a head-on war between, you know, deep green technologists who need to stabilize the climate now because they don't want their kids to grow up farming gravel, and a bunch of you know more bundled industries with a ton of money behind them but no vision for the future of the human race, President Psychedelic Warlord is their champion. <laughs> yeah. Right. The political struggle for the soul of the world is going to be fought in America, and it's going to be fought in the next 10 or 15 years. And uh, the Trump-Sanders thing is the last of the dinosaurs duking it out over a battlefield that was laid down 150 years ago by Karl Marx. Uh-huh. Right? It's the last round of politics which will be dominated by Marxist thinking because the next round of politics is humans versus transhumans. Hmm. It's and you don't think you don't think Marx's thinking has anything to add to that conversation? Um, if Marx was alive today, he would not be worrying about who owns the factories. Mm -hmm. He'd be worrying about who owns the culture. Yeah. So I'm sure there are clades within Marxism that have managed to update Marxism to a fully modern form that have really gotten their heads around everything that happened. I've just never met those people. Right. Right. I mean, in London, uh, friends of friends of mine ran a thing called the Deterritorial Support Group which are a bunch of extremely advanced Marxist and cultural analysts that were doing fantastic work on updating a whole bunch of thinking. A lot of that thinking fed into a guy called Paul Mason, who wrote some very high-profile books about capitalism. Uh -huh. um, Mason is a really big deal in the UK. Um, and even then, it's kind of laughable. Mm -hmm. Like, really? You know, is that really what we're going for? Um, so you start thinking much more in terms of, like, basic income, micro-insurance, free education, open source technology funded by governments, uh, re-regulation of the patent regime, so it tends to concentrate wealth differently, mm. maybe not more, maybe maybe not less, but differently, more of it going to future innovation rather than to rentiers. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of re-engineering you could do of the basic way that we handle intellectual property that would result in a massively more accelerant society. Mm. And you could just restructure this thing you know, like, act as if your civilization wants to survive. Mm -hmm. How are we going to do it? We're going to fund all the smart people to build the technology to fix the problem. How are we going to do that? Well, some of it's going to be government, some of it's going to be industry. How is the government going to do it? Direct allocation of funds and tax structure. Mm -hmm. Crack the whip, get the people moving. Yo, you, you're over there building bombs for a living? Do we need those bombs? No, those bombs were designed 30 years ago for blowing up Russian tanks. We don't need those bombs. You, go do something useful. Mm. So what about, I don't think we fully double-clicked on the accelerationists mm. and authoritarian 
uh, so streaks. I don't think of the author- accelerationists as being automatically authoritarian. Uh-huh. Right? I think there's a big chunk there of just put the pedal to the metal and accelerate out of this mess. Yeah. Um, there are factions within accelerationism that want to destroy capitalism by basically driving into an extreme and having it blow up. And then this fades into neo-reaction and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, frankly, they don't stand a rat's arse in hell of getting any of that to happen. Right? The world is moving so quickly and it's so complex that even the successful authoritarian regimes are basically collapsing under the weight of change. Mm. Like China is holding on by its fingernails. But the fact that they've gone back to a president for life model rather than a ruling council. Yeah is a strong indicator that they're losing their marbles. Well, what about the more what about the more elegant city-state model? Like the Singapores and the Dubais? Um, I think they're fantastic, right? I mean, you know, okay, there's a bunch of sacrificing of civil liberties, but, you know, Singapore... Somebody said Singapore is basically a paradise that everybody has mistaken from hell because they've never been anywhere else, hmm. right? Because the, the deal between the Singaporean public and the Singaporean government is if you're not really tempting to tear down our stuff, we ignore you completely. Hmm. You know, like, it's it's a pretty clean system. I would say that Switzerland's governance and Singapore's governance are of roughly equivalent quality, one being authoritarian bureaucracy and the other being radical democracy. But I think they both have about equal experiences of the quality of governance available to them. Mm-hmm. Is Switzerland a better model? Sure, if you can make it work that way. If you can't, the other stuff is certainly better than shitty democracies. Hmm. I mean, I'm from a country that just voted for Brexit, mm-hmm. right? being ruled by a guy that makes Donald Trump look like Albert Einstein. Mm. Democracy? Mm, maybe, but, you know, it can't be run like this. Mm. And this gets into questions about liquid democracy and democratic reform. You know, we've changed everything else in society in radical ways for centuries, mm-hmm. apart from the fact that you turn up in a little wooden box and put an X on a piece of paper once every four years. Right. We wonder why democracy feels broken it's because it's a 300-year-old institution that we haven't modernized at all. Right. We should have modernized it 15 times for radio, for television, for trains, you know, for telegraph, for newspapers, every single time that we changed the basic structure in the way that people make political decisions, we should have updated representative democracy to remain dynamic and fluid and connected. Mm. And instead, we just ossified it inside of a box and the damn thing is 300 years old nobody can tolerate anything else which is 300 years old as a daily part of their lives. That's right, it. Quill right. pens, leaky shoes, and toilets that involve throwing buckets out of windows. That's how old an X on a piece of paper every four years is. Mm. Why does anybody think that's fit for purpose? So, you know, for democratic principles to survive, democratic machinery has to be updated to the 21st century. And I don't mean naive internet balloting. Right? You know, it's not like, oh, well, let's vote more often, use a button. Like, eh, no. What I mean is, and again, this is all in Shockwave Rider. So in Shockwave Rider, the political change that they're approaching is dividing up the uh, voting districts based on profession and class rather than on geography. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's that kind of retooling of like, let's figure out what democracy actually looks like such that everybody is represented. It might look more like a state that was run by a consortium of unions. Mm-hmm. Right, all of the people that teach children for a living are a voting block, and they get to vote on the people that make the law that involves education of children. That kind of structure might be way more effective, because you would have people that actually had shared interests electing their representatives. 
And instead, it's just all the people that happen to live in some hellishly gerrymandered district from hell. Right. Right? Yeah. So, you know, could you make democracy work? Absolutely. Could you do it by having a bunch of clean sweep states? Like Patrick Friedman's model is start a bunch of new countries that are on the city-state model, have them tried lots of different mechanisms for governance and find the ones that work and scale them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we had one state in the world with a really super effective democracy, we could export those lessons back to everywhere else. Mm. But right now, the democracies are just shit. They're failing so hard. Yeah. You know, and it's very frightening that the democracies are failing so hard. But they're failing so hard. Namely, one democracy that's taken climate change properly seriously. Mm. Not a single one. Have we had any action on denuclearization since the end of the Cold War? No, Pentagon budget's bigger than it ever was. Mm. Right? Who are we fighting now? Ooh, Syria. Syria, big threat. Mm, big weapons. Yes, yeah, four tanks. You see? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, you really have to think radically in terms of fixing democracy. Um, so, there's another side to this, which is, what does it look like to design a one-planet lifestyle? If you start with the idea that the fundamental constraint is you shouldn't consume any more than your fair share of the world's resources, this addresses carbon, it addresses slavery, it addresses governance, right? it addresses supply chains, it addresses science and technology. If we're going to live a one-planet lifestyle, we have to fund the people that can make that lifestyle pleasant enough that we're willing to change. Mm. And that's not a problem that has been solved by democratic governments. It's not a problem that knows any borders. How are seven and a half billion people going to put money together into a bucket to create the tools that they need to live inside of a sustainable footprint? Mm-hmm. You know, if everybody puts a dollar a year into a bucket, seven and a half billion dollars, if the rich put in their fair share, it's more like a hundred billion dollars. Mm. Right? What if everybody in the world puts a day's worth of income into a fund to go and solve the goddamn problem? Yeah, see, this strikes me that there needs to be much more creative storytelling. Yeah. Much more creative storytelling. Science fiction got hypnotized by the singularity and then became paralyzed. Hmm. Uh, say more about that. Engineers read sci-fi and watch sci-fi when they are young, and then when they're in their 30s, they build it. Uh-huh. So if you watch what the young engineers are reading now, it's mostly singularitarian, which means in all probability by the mid-2030s, we're going to have strong AI. Uh-huh. Right? But nobody's really paying attention to all the other things you can do with science and technology. So nobody's writing fiction about it, or at least that fiction isn't selling. And as a result, there's an enormous delivery gap. Right. Because this is how engineering culture operates. Yeah. First it's fiction, then it's product. First it's fiction, then it's product. First it's fiction, then it's product. Mm-hmm. Right? I read Bruce Sterling's stuff in the late 1980s, Green Days and Brunei, a short story. Mm-hmm a robot factory that produces plywood catamarans that they sail around the world handing out free food because they've got incredibly good uh, agricultural practices that can be taught to the locals. <laughs> and I read that and was like, right, I can do that. Mm-hmm. So then I came to the hex here. Okay, it's not a plywood catamaran, it's a plywood house. And then I designed all the critical infrastructure stuff around it, but it was all in exactly the same register as Green Days in Brunei. If that story hadn't existed, we would have none of this. Mm. And, you know, Sterling is kind of a prophetic figure in my life, which makes him super uncomfortable. Bruce, you wrote a story and I decided I was going to build my entire life on it and I'm actually doing fairly well. He's kind of looking at me like, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) 
Um, Ken McLeod is another one of those, right? An old Scottish sci-fi guy. Uh-huh. Wrote a bunch of books about the interface between technology and governance, which are phenomenal. There's one called The Star Fraction. And it's got things like, um, you know, futures markets for nuclear weapons use. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. You know, you just rent time on a nuclear weapon so that if you have the option of using it in that period, nobody else does. And that was his solution to global stability, which was that all of the small countries had the ability to license nuclear weapons for short periods. So if you jammed them into a corner, they would nuke you. Wow. <laughs> yeah, really seriously, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as science fiction became more and more and more obsessed with consciousness in the sense of artificial intelligence attaining consciousness, right? enormous amounts of the cultural power drained out. Yeah, why did that meme get so sticky? Uh, I think it's because a lot of people think it's inevitable. Right? right. I have a weird blind spot about AI, which is I just don't believe in super intelligent machines. Uh-huh. And I can't justify that lack of belief in any rational way. It's not like I have some well-worked argument about, you know, well, the neural nets will do this and they'll do that, and that's why you can't have super intelligence. I just kind of have a gut feeling of like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't justify it. Mm-hmm. You know, intellectually, if I'm talking to somebody that's a strong believer in strong AI, I can't explain why I don't think it's happening. The closest I have is that I think we've misunderstood intelligence. Yeah. And I think of it as like overexposed film. Mm-hmm. If you have too much intelligence for the problem that you're solving, you get a bad solution because the film is overexposed. Mm. But that's no kind of an argument against something which so many people believe to be a, a, an inevitable outcome. Um, so I don't know what happens with this. But it's a very weird cognitive quirk because every other threat, my antenna are like fully wound out for. But that one I've never done any work on and I've never felt any emotional impulse to work on it. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think the, the thread that might be interesting to go down is this, this idea of the social singularity. Mm. How did you phrase it? It's the voluntary rejection of certain types of technology. Yeah. So, I mean, right now we're in a position where um, the technology has gotten us to a point where most people are disoriented and afraid. Yes. Right. And a lot of that is predatory algorithms that try and show you things which will scare you because then you will click on ads. There's a bunch of that. But there's also just that it's peeling back layer after layer after layer after layer of our ignorance about the world and showing us stuff that we didn't want to know. Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, oh, it's dark out there, or all in that. Um, the flip side of that is, well, the other thing is the narrative break now. Right? Mm-hmm. So the formation of red America and blue America as two things with different realities. You know, when everybody got their news from CBS, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right? You had one, albeit corporate, mediated, government-approved voice that sort of set the tone for an entire country, and everybody made up their decision relative to an agreed set of facts. Mm-hmm. Once you take away the agreed set of facts, people are really living in different realities. Yeah. And that split is probably the most dangerous thing in the world right now, given that both factions are nuclear. Yeah. You know, seeing a nuclear war between Americans and other Americans to be is more likely than seeing a nuclear war between Americans and Chinese. Um, so... And that's, by the way, because I think a nuclear war between Americans and Chinese is incredibly improbable. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's a likely outcome for Americans to nuke Americans, but I'm saying it's more likely than for Americans to nuke anybody else right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Because nobody else is dumb enough to screw with Americans, but Americans are dumb enough to screw with each other. Yeah. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Yes. Problem. So the flip side of this is, you know, you have this kind of, you know, other direction, which is people that are becoming really skeptical about technology. You have a definite faction forming in society, which is just like, I don't own an Alexa, 
you know, I hardly touch my phone. You know, I sit down in front of a computer and I answer email and then I put it away and I don't own a TV. You know, what do you do? Well, I do yoga and I read music and I you know, write music and I read books. And, you know, I spend a lot of time with my dog and my kids. And, you know, when I go home, I unplug. And I think that trend potentially becomes a really big part of the future. Um, like the New Age movement and the yoga movement and veganism and all the rest of these things, these are all trends which have a very distinct impact on your relationship with technology. Mm -hmm. And I think we could see a very large, fashionable demographic just going no tech. Mm. And you can almost see that, right? If you think about like fashionable women who will carry a phone, but they only ever use it as a camera to tweet things to Instagram. Mm -hmm. And other than that, like they never read messages, you can't phone them. If they're not physically present, they're unreachable, mm -hmm. right? So that could very well become a very powerful status symbol of just like, you know, darling, I'm only ever in the real world. Mm -hmm. And if that becomes a fashion thing, you know, you could imagine an entire sector of elite society just dropping off grid. Mm. Um, and then we get to this question of AI, like, I think one very likely outcome for AI is that it will turn out to be incredibly powerful, but it will creep people out so badly they'll never use it. Mm. Like, corporations will use it for running operations, but it will be so frightening and so distasteful that it'll be buried, like, five levels deep inside of the data center, and even though the thing is conscious, human beings will never talk to it except for a select band of priests. Because contact with non-human intelligence might turn out to just freak people out that badly. Mm. And it's it's the priestly caste, the priestly role to commune with the, the, the non-ordinary. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, really, did you see that kind of... Um, the Dark Mirror episode where they basically download my Cyrus into a foot-long little robot. Yeah. So, you know, the conceit here is that you can pack the personality into a little chip and the little chip operates a toy and it's all great. And that they made the toy's personality by filtering down the real one. And when you do the filter off, the real one pops out again and it's a fully embodied human consciousness in a plastic toy. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, bear in mind that Kafka would have had something to say about that, right? Mm-hmm. But even under the assumption that this is a tolerable life for an intelligent being, you know, nobody's going to let their kid play with an artificial person that has an opinion because it's just a stranger, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's packed into, you know, some fluffball robot that is completely incapable of causing harm to a human being because the form factor is like a furry football, right? You know, the worst thing it can do is run into your feet and maybe mildly startle you. Even in that format, if the thing has anything resembling general intelligence at a human level, what is it doing to your kid's mind? Right. Right? Right. You know, your grandmother has an AI that helps her manage the house and makes sure she doesn't accidentally set the chips on fire. Right? But, you know, who wrote it? What's its agency? Is it a nice person? Is it a nasty person? If it's a person, how do I know I can trust it? And if it's programmed to be trustworthy, how do I know I can trust the people that programmed it to be trustworthy? And so on back up through the stack. So I have a feeling that we might wind up treating AIs as like super dangerous radioactive waste. Mm. You know, like the AI lives in a thing that looks like a nuclear reactor surrounded by bombs. And, you know, you have it solve your problems, but the data goes in and the data comes out. And other than that, the fact that it's conscious is a problem, not a solution. Have, are there examples of this with technology that has been tried to introduce to the market? They, they try to introduce it to the market and it gets rejected because Ooh. because of an uncanny valley or something like that. Virtual reality. 
Oh, okay. I mean, VR, they've been pushing. I saw my first VR system in 1991. Wow, okay. Yeah, and in those days, it was cathode ray tubes. Like, remember, you, you might even be too young. Once upon a time, monitors were large glass bubbles, <laughs> right? And at the back of it was an electron gun that scrolled a bream of electrons over a surface. Mm-hmm. And the more voltage that was shot down the electron gun, well, the more ampage that was shot down the electron gun, the brighter the dot was. Mm-hmm. Right? This was cathode ray tube monitors. They were everywhere before flat panels. Right? So it was two very small cathode ray tubes mounted in a plastic helmet that you wore. And it ran like one computer per channel and it was wireframe graphics. And it was slow and the head tracking sucked. And it was just enough that it's like, oh, I'm in a place which is not the place my body is. Wow. This is amazing. And then 25 years later, 30 years later, 30 years, gone, that's a long time ago, VR still sucks. Mm. You know? I mean, it's totally amazing, but it still sucks to the mm. point where they've poured endless money into trying to get people to buy it, and people just won't buy it. So what does this tell us? People don't like VR. Mm-hmm. Because if they did like VR, they would put up with crappy technology because it was amazing. So think of, like, crappy 8-bit synthesizers chip tunes, right? All the horrors of 80s synth music. People loved synths. They put up with crappy synths and the synths improved. People don't love VR. What does the VR need in order for people to... It seems like it it needs to be a better escape. It needs to be a better world to to go into. (sighs) To be honest, I think that the problems with VR are largely artistic rather than technical at this point. Uh Right. So there's no cinematography. Everything runs like a simulation, one second per second, whereas cinema is completely obsessed with ways of compressing space and time. Mm-hmm. So think of like jump cuts, where you've got you know thirty-five cuts in fifteen seconds, mm-hmm. five seconds, where it shows you a scene from half a dozen people's perspective and zooms in super close on tiny little moments of action, like somebody pulling a gun. Mm-hmm. And what it's really showing is a stream of consciousness from inside other people's heads, whereas what VR shows you is like surveillance camera footage of the scene. Uh, right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So until VR is no longer showing you surveillance camera footage, it's probably not going to be a compelling experience. So imagine that you put on a VR headset and what it shows you is the inside of somebody else's mind. Now that's interesting, mm-hmm. right? I put on the headset, you are now inside of the brain of Salvador Dali. Don't expect anything to work like it does in the real world. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there's an internal narrator, which is Salvador Dali. That sort of thing where we stop using VR to simulate physical reality and start using it to simulate conceptual reality, mm-hmm. that might be the kind of kick in the pants that VR needs. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's just broken. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had the kind of... I'm trying to remember what the name was of the guy that did the first actual film. You know, the thing with the train that they showed running towards people in a theater? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, you know, like, yeah, Vinay, the art historian... Um, but you know that very famous film where they had a black and white film of a steam train and they showed it in cinemas and people screamed and ran out of the theatre because they thought the train was real uh-huh. they had no framework of moving images to tell them that this wasn't actually a thing that was going to endanger them Right, right. Um, you know, that's, we're waiting for that guy in VR uh-huh. we're waiting for the person who defines cinematography as a thing, we're waiting for the person that figures out the poems should rhyme could rhyme I'm going to get flack from all the poets. They don't have to rhyme. But you know what I'm saying? Like rhymes, yeah. Rhyming was very important for epic poetry. 
and somebody figured out that necessary hack for it to work. Yeah. Iambic pentameter, there's another one, right? So I feel like we're in a position where we've got technology but no art. And that's not going to change until non-technologists are buying VR systems. We're stuck in a loop where people won't buy the VR system because the content is crap, and the content is crap because only nerds are buying VR systems. Right. And the nerds are, are largely blind to content quality. Just ask me how much science fiction TV I watch. Mm. Right? You know, when I need to rest my brain, I put on crappy sci-fi. There's an infinite amount of crappy sci-fi. And it's because the nerds have terrible aesthetics, mm. generally speaking. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. So, you know, I mean, it may be that James Cameron cracks this. Like, I'd be entirely unsurprised if Avatar wasn't launched with a massive VR push alongside of it. Mm. And maybe he'll crack it. Mm. Does, does AR have the same problem? Seems like there's more use cases. AR is really easy to use. Yeah. Like, I mean, all we really want is a little screen that pops up beside people's heads that tells us who they are and when we last talked to them and what we said. Mm. You know? Like, I meet way more people than my brain will let me remember. Mm-hmm. People walk up to me all the time like, hey, Vinay. And I'm just like, okay, in a few seconds, this person will say something that will allow me to remember who they are. But until they start telling me something that gives me a frame of reference, I'm guessing from a face. And I'm not exactly face blind, but I can remember maybe low hundreds of faces rather than many thousands. Mm -hmm. Whereas when people start telling me their story or they give me some reference to a place or a time or a when we met or a technical thing or something that I have a handle, then it will all come back. But that first awkward section of time where I'm just like, who is this person? Who is this person? They know me. I know them. Smile and nod. Hope they say something referen- that I can reference. That cycle, you know, just give me a piece of software that gives me the freaking context cue mm-hmm. every time. And people wanted that from Google Glass and Google wouldn't let them build it. Why? because they thought it was going to provoke a terrible backlash and they'd rather fail the first time completely than build something that would cause, like, a Butlerian Jihad. Uh-huh. Butlerian yeah. Jihad was the anti-AI crusade in Dune. That's why Dune isn't overrun by robots. That's why what? The Dune yeah. world? Yeah. The Dune world has star drives but no computers because the computers evolved artificial intelligence and there was a war between meat suits and software and the meat suits won and eradicated software. Mm. Uh, and then they won't let people build intelligent machines anymore, which is why the Dune universe runs on brain power. Mm. So the whole question about humans selecting technology, um, there's really two choke points. There's what do we fund research into, and there's what will people buy. And VC is the art of figuring out how to fund research into things that people will buy. Mm-hmm. Right? And that model has been remarkably successful at making things that people will buy. But, you know, we also need some work on what is good for people. Like technology research in the global public interest, even in the national interest, people don't seem to understand that we can shape the future by developing technologies to advance specific political agendas. So all the people that are working on solar panels are working on a green future, by creating the possibility of having a high quality of life green future. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. It's super important that they're doing it. And that kind of stuff scales across all kinds of other domains. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how things should be. Hmm. So what is um what does venture capital need? How how can it evolve? So I think right now we're in a position where we're very bad at using philanthropic money to do technologically R&D. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's a bit of it around gates and there's you know some impacty stuff and all the rest of it, but there isn't a concerted model of we're going to burn a billion dollars figuring out how to eradicate the following disease and it's a biotech problem, we're going to come out with a vaccine. There's a little bit of work that works that way, but there isn't a sense of just like, we're going to take that disease and we're going to kill it. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to figure out how to do it. We're going to take this social problem and we're going to figure out how to use engineering to get rid of that problem at root. Like, why are old people lonely? Well, nobody talks to them. Well, they'd probably talk to each other if you could find the people that had overlapping areas of interest and make the introductions in a way that worked for them. Mm-hmm. That's great. Old people could sit at home on Skype talking to people about the old days and their kids and the things they want to do while they've got the remaining 15 years and all the rest of that stuff. There's no reason for old people to be isolated. It's just nobody with any technological skill cared enough about that problem to go fix it. Right. But how many charities are there that are trying to help old people feel less alone? Hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. Right. So the idea that you would basically put money on that job and you'd keep doing research until you fixed it and you'd chip away at it year after year, decade after decade, if necessary, generation after generation, until you solved the problem, there's no institution in the world that has that kind of long-term technological problem-solving mindset except the sodding military. Mm. Practically the only place that we do strategic technology development is in the course of developing weapons and spying tools and all the rest of that. But that's the kind of thinking that we need to solve the global energy crisis. It's the problem that we need to solve the global food crisis. It's it's the approach we need to solve the global contraception crisis. Mm. Hormonal contraceptives, really, really intrusive. Right? Barrier contraceptives, not that great to use. Technology research budget for this, a few tens of millions of dollars a year, and that's all that's going into it. Right? Non, you know, better barrier contraceptive design, huge impacts. Let's get half the brains on NASA working on a condom that people will voluntarily wear. Mm-hmm. Right? Without having this feeling that it's a second best. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Right? Like that problem right there of actually condoms are not that great for either party but you do it because you have to, that's happening because the technology isn't there to make that process seamless and imagine how different life would be if it was. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. How hard can it really be to fix that so that you've got a thin sheet material that has all the various attributes you want for that thin sheet material and that can be mass-produced cheaply and reliably, even expensively and reliably? Right? You know, there has been improvement. But that is a core thing that affects every human being on Earth that has an active sex life. Mm-hmm. So why is that not a thing that's right on the top of a list of things to solve? Because at the end of the day, you know, if condoms were great and nobody noticed they were wearing one and it was all just Jim Tandy, hormonal birth control would be a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. We're literally feeding women all these crazy freaking hormones because nobody can figure out how to make a plastic bag that doesn't suck to wear. <laughs> wow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because, you know, just, just think about the simplicity of it, right? Mm-hmm. If condoms didn't change the sexual experience for either partner, nobody would care if they were wearing one or not. As a result, people would wear them routinely and hormonal birth control would be a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Women's bodies could work in the way they always have rather than constantly having to find ways of manipulating them into not getting pregnant. How hard could it be? Probably not that hard if we accepted that it was a global priority for 58 million reasons. And it's our inability to sensibly identify those global priorities and then spend money until we solve them, which is breaking the world. Right? Yeah. You just can't seem to get metal on target for this stuff. 
Yeah. And is that the role of government? Maybe. Is it the role of private enterprise? Probably should be because these things would be wicked profitable. Uh, is it the role of charities? Possibly. Right? Consumer unions? You know, everybody that has sex puts $10 a month into a bucket that says eventually we're going to crack this condom thing. Right? I mean, there must be 50 million ways that we could organize society in such a way that we could get the technology R&D done to fundamentally solve these problems. But what happens is that we, we imagine that these are social problems. Right? Oh, well, you know, men won't wear condoms and it's unsafe for women. And then there's the whole thing of the politics of the pill and people are in, you know, long-standing monogamous relationships and they've been on the pill for years and, they, you know, they got hell and da 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 There's an endless machinery around living with the problem with the fact that condoms, generally speaking, are not great. Mm-hmm. And that machinery is multidimensionally ramified into people's lives in all kinds of terrible ways. And it all comes down to some sense that the biology doesn't like the plastic. Mm-hmm. Figure out how to solve that problem, all of those social problems evaporate. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just you unpick the knot and the whole thing unravels. Mm. And the world is filled with problems like that. You know, thorium reactors, fusion reactors, solar panels, all these things are approximations. Right? All of those, any of those, could have been made a global priority and fixed. And people say, what's well, a governance problem, and it's a this problem and that problem. I feel like the actual problem here is that we don't clearly communicate to people when they're small children that to correctly design technology is the answer to social problems. Mm. And that's a flaw, I think, largely inside of English culture. Mm. It's specific to English culture. It's class war. Right? There was a period where the northern engineering money was putting a ton of pressure on the feudal landowners. So the people that owned factories were beginning to get richer than the people that owned land. And so there was cultural warfare to try and limit the social power of the people that owned factories to affect the lives of the people that owned land. And that struggle is why, for example, science fiction is not part of the English literary canon. Mm. Right? Sci-fi and everything around it was kicked out of universities as a topic of study because it was crass and northern and industrial and you know men of letters had no business studying this trash that was working man's culture. Wow. Class war, right? And what took its place was pastoralism. Right. Right? All this, you know, rainbow colored sheep herding, running around on the whole on the hills wuthering and stuff like that. Right, this whole massive comedies of manners and all the rest of this malarkey, that was happening at exactly the same period that H.G. Wells was beginning to crank out the jams. Mm. Right, Jules Verne, all of that stuff was happening at the same time as you know the Brontes and all the rest of this. Right? And one of these things is still lionized today, and the other one has been pushed into a ghetto, because even though you don't get NASA unless Jules Verne writes stuff about going to the moon, Everybody wants to pretend inside of academia that that stuff is trash and not really important. Mm-hmm. Engineering culture is a science fiction made manifest. Science fiction is how engineers make reality. Mm. And this is not studied in universities as a critical priority because of decisions that were made inside of English culture that ramified right through the history. Wow. Yeah. So... How do we inspire a new generation of engineers? So, to be honest, at this point, I think we need a new military, right? We need something that has most of the attributes of the military, but that is serious about solving global problems other than human beings pointing sticks at us. Mm -hmm. Because the military mindset 
much as it is brutal and much as it is stupid in many, many cases, it is we are going to solve this problem or die trying. And we need that kind of we are going to solve this problem or die trying on a huge pile of issues. Mm -hmm. We are up to our arses in really, really deep, dug-in, thorny, horrible problems, mm -hmm. right? That we don't seem to be able to organize any kind of concerted way of dealing with. You know, I mean, just think about the entire um, sweep of problems caused by barrier contraception not working properly. STDs, hormonal birth control, you know, endless amounts of shenanigans about unwanted pregnancy, teenage pregnancy, yada, 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 yada. Mm -hmm. That single problem of you know, people aren't wearing condoms all the time that they should be. That single problem, the friction around that problem, no pun intended, you know, is at the root of so much human suffering, but we don't seem to be able to organize to alleviate that suffering using any of our existing models for pooling resources. And that problem, if we can cut through that problem, everything else is soluble. So suppose that you had a kind of, you know, planetary engineering core and people voluntarily donate money to this thing, and that thing lays out a set of 15, 20, 25 costed priorities, and as the money goes in, the research gets done, and when we run out of money to do the research, we scream until people give us more money. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of an approach where you have a new social structure which basically stands up globally and says, look, we exist to turn money into research on fundamental problems, we'll continue to fund the research until the job is done, it has to not look anything like cancer charities because that description also applies to cancer charities but most cancer charities completely suck because nobody wants to really study cancer charities mm -hmm. right nobody has a passion for figuring out whether cancer researchers are doing good work or crappy work because the money comes the same either way right right so you need a culture in which people are actively interested in solving these problems or they figure out how to delegate to people that will not allow inefficiency to exist on their watch. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting because, um, like, you're pointing to something that's really important, which is that it, it's it's the military mindset and, and the culture of sort of discipline and commitment. Mm -hmm. But there's also um, really rigid uh, hierarchy. Yep. And it seems like what's needed with what you're talking about is is a lot more creative thinking. So we definitely need the creative thinking, right? We need the innovative research, but I mean, there is a there is a thing to do or die, which is magic. I will do this or die trying is a door opener at a scale that most people can never imagine, mm -hmm. and that's a level of commitment which it is going to take to solve climate change. It's a level of commitment which it's going to take to solve biotechnology so that we manage our biotech in such a way that we don't end up with 16-year-olds designing like genetic bombs in 2035. You know, biotech tooling is running out of all control and eventually somebody's going to weaponize that in it, other than nation states. Yeah. There have been a few bio-war bio attacks that were organized by groups like cults. But you know, when you get to the point where genetically engineering a virus that does something very specific is easy, it's only a matter of time until the kind of people that swat each other are designing plagues. Mm -hmm. You know, when 4chan has, you know, uh, slash bio. My blood is actually running cold right now. I mean, having seen the damage that 4chan did with slash Paul. <laughs> slash bio. Yeah, Jesus. see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus, right? So, you know, we kind of have to solve that problem before 4chan has a bioengineering board. Jesus. Yeah. 
right? And it's not like we can't do this. We've gone through cultural change on this scale over and over and over again. But I think we really need a kind of class of, you know, celestial engineers that basically just stand up and start solving these gone-down problems. We need the social machinery to support these people. Mm-hmm. You know, is it a religion? Is it a military? Is it a cult? Is it a union? Is it a social movement? Is it a thing that doesn't have a name yet? The open source world did phenomenal global engineering work for decades. And if Richard Stallman had been a little more charismatic and a little less feisty, in all probability, open source would have been 10, well, free software, god damn it. Free software would have been 10 times the size that it has been. Mm-hmm. But of course, it gets diluted into open source, and even people like me that care about the issues will still occasionally say the wrong thing. Sorry, Richard, it's my fault. I'll try harder. Right? <laughs> um, I dinner with Stallman a couple of times, and my God, the ideological purity. It's like trying to justify yourself to Gandhi. Mm. No, no, we're doing the right thing. You're using Macintosh. You're enslaving the minds of the future by giving control to corporations that will use copyright to strangle free thought. Okay, okay. And then Twitter, you know, which was the place where all of the great thinking was happening in my life for most of 10 years, mm-hmm. changes the goddamn algorithms, right? And at that point, all of the intellectual discourse in Twitter has stopped. Because you tweet something intellectually important and nobody sees it because the algorithm ignores it. You tweet something which is about some piece of trash culture and the algorithm pushes it. Right. Right. And suddenly one of the best intellectual thinking grounds in the world has gotten basically muffled, presumably because the bad guys were using it for thinking and so were the good guys and the national security people cracked down. Mm. So, you know, what I'm basically saying here is new social movements that take in money and emit technology and have incredibly high standards of peer review, right? You probably have to structure them as charities, but they have to be charities of a completely unprecedented type. They have to be able to fund research for decades. They have to not be relying on you know, trivial commitment. So maybe it's something where you decide that you're gonna commit you know, 1% of your income for the next 30 years to the thing and you swear in, and after that you get a tattoo and, you know, we have the best beach parties in the world for the people that have that tattoo and nobody else is allowed in. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. something that has almost religious overtones of a lifetime of commitment yeah. to a cause. I think it has. It definitely has to have religious overtones. You know, so what, what does it take, right? You have an identifiable tattoo, like a round green dot representing the earth or humans or trees or something. You vouch 1% to 5% of your income and you get a bigger dot depending on how much you've vouched. Mm-hmm. The organization legally collects that income from you you know, in all circumstances except starvation, right? You have to send them your tax return or they send out a debt collector and then they take 10% of whatever you paid the government, however you design the machinery. But you'd have to lock people into it in a way that they made the commitment. And then having made the commitment, they could publicly demonstrate they'd made the commitment and then be among their peers in a preferential way. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you could form a united global movement to solve the world's problems through science and technology, plausible, mm-hmm. right? Then the question is, how do you keep the money clean? The answer is, every single damn thing that that movement does has to be documented down to the last penny on our good friend, the blockchain, including how the money is spent. Mm-hmm. Every decision that's made, every board meeting, all the tapes, you know, data is stored in one place, hashes are stored in another, all available for audit. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Right? I, Radical I, I, transparency. Great massive disagreement of how it's governed. Well, I mean, who says there's only one? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, pick your color, pick your symbol, right. let, let a thousand flowers bloom. Because you could have many organizations at the same template of a tithe 
and that there's research ties, and these guys are space guys, and they think they're going to solve the world's problems with this technology. These guys are bio guys, they're going to solve it with that technology. You know? Yeah. I love that idea of a research tithe. Uh, actually, I think that might be one of the more useful things that's ever come out of my mouth. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because, you know, if you see somebody who's got, you know, a little blue angel tattoo, and what that means is that they're tithing their income towards fixing contraception, you know, you know what their values are, and they know that they've made a 30-year binding commitment to those values. Yeah. And, by the way, 30-year binding commitment is not unrealistic, right? Mm -hmm. In 2002, when I started working on, I'm going to protect hundreds of millions of climate refugees by fixing how we handle displaced people. I knew it was going to take 30 years until we got any substantial global movement on that, mm -hmm. right? And I knew that because I knew a lot about how technology develops over time, you know? So I figured 15 years until the first refugees were living in Hexer, it's another 15 years until we got to scale, and we hit those numbers. The shift pod, which is a direct descendant of the Hexer, and I'm very happy to see it, you know, they acknowledge its ancestry because it looks like a Hexer, but you can fold it up and put it in the back of a car, it's technological innovation on top of the work that I did, and I'm very happy it exists. Mm -hmm. They've got refugees living in shift pods. Mm. So 17 years in, 15 years in, we got to the marker point. We got some refugees living in hexyard-like things. 15 years from now, maybe it'll take 20 years, not 15, deployed global capacity to handle hundreds of millions of people. So I'm 18 years into a 30-year commitment, and it seems to be working pretty well. Mm. So is it unrealistic to say to people for the next 30 years, you're going to put 1% of your income into a bucket and we'll calculate it by looking at whatever you pay the government and taking 10% of that? You know, all the math is already being done in the form of tax returns. You could just push it the rest of the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's how do you demonstrate the, um, the credibility of the people that you're going to be committing to? It, how, do, how do they show showed that their competency, their commitment, their... Yeah. How, how do you audit? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this, the seriousness of the commitment is also part of how you get the auditing done. Like, if you have a tattoo and a date on it that says when you were enrolled, mm -hmm. then I think you're going to put so much pressure on those people to live up to the standards that you've set that I think that might be enough to keep it scrubbed clean because you're going to have board members that are elected by people that actually give a shit. Mm -hmm. Because every year, you know, you're know, you sending out a check for 1500 bucks to get something done. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you feel a little weird about the charity and then you give the money to a different charity. It's the 30-year commitment to one group that forces you to keep it clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, like... The corporation's ruled by the quarterly return. The government's ruled by four-year electoral cycles. Right. What is it that has a 30-year agenda? What has a 30-year horizon? Right. So if we make it clear that this only works if you put a 30-year or more horizon on it, this is for your entire adult life. You sign in when you're 21, you sign out when you're 55. You know, you're binding yourself to give a chunk of your money to this thing in perpetuity down near. Mm -hmm. You know, rethink it when you're in your 50s, but until then you keep your head down, you keep sending the money by law, right? I think that that has the kind of radical power to take the sort of ideological anger that Greta has and turn it into problem solving, mm -hmm. right? Greta says, get your goddamn tattoos, start sending the money to the climate research people. This is your job. 
okay, the state won't organize to do it. You're going to make a commitment to us, which is as strong as your commitment to the state. We're going to enforce it using the same laws the state uses. We're going to run it off the tax returns so you don't have to calculate the number twice. And you're going to give us the money by law. And you're going to force us to spend the money appropriately because you are locked into this and you're going to make sure that we are not screwing you. Because if we are screwing you, you're locked into us screwing you for decades. Mm -hmm. I think that would create the necessary seriousness and incentives to get people to audit charities properly. Mm -hmm. You don't leave it to the government's charity commissioners. You bloody well do it yourself because you're going to be paying these guys next year and the year afterwards. And if they're screwing up, they're going to be wasting your money for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the level of push that's required. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Founders Pledge on steroids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, a much more aggressive form of Founders Pledge. And I don't think we're quite ready yet, but if we start talking about it now, five years from now, somebody might do it. Mm-hmm. Mm. On the blockchain. <laughs> Obligatory. Yes, of course. <sighs> yeah, make that fucking happen. I love that idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it worked for me, right? Yeah. Maybe I just need to get a tattoo and backdate it to 2002. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, the, the storytelling piece that that I, I I'm I think I'm most interested in like how, how to sort of like mass inspire yeah I mean I think this is the kind of stuff that Brock Pierce is doing a ton of thinking about mm -hmm. you know like Brock is really working super hard on trying to figure out how to change mass culture from a position of being you know like a shiny celebrity guy mm -hmm. you know I mean he's sort of he's um, evolving in the direction of um, Iron Man right mm-hmm like, he's, he's trying to establish a position where the Brock Pierce show is the kind of, you know, charismatic, philanthropic, billionaire religion kind of a thing. Right. Uh, and I think that he is such a changed person from he, the person that he was when he hit the public eye in a big way. Mm -hmm. Like, a few years, there was a kind of sudden fashionable moment where mocking Brock Pierce was a thing because he'd swung too far in one direction. Like, remember, he got, like, pilloried by John Oliver? Mm-hmm. Right. And... You know, he just swung too far in one direction, got whacked, and I think has, you know, course corrected pretty dramatically, mm -hmm. and is continuing to evolve towards building the kind of platform that you would need to begin to get people moving on this level. Mm -hmm. And you give him another few years, he might actually have the leverage to get people to really commit to change. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he's not the only person working on that, but, you know, building the level of serious political commitment with people that have real resources to get this kind of change done, mm -hmm. that's going to be a hell of a process. Yeah. Alright, that feels like a good place to end. Splendid. I've really enjoyed this and I feel like we got something useful done. This is fucking great. Yeah, there's part two coming too. Amazing. Nice Thanks, work. Nice work.